Good morning. My name is Matt Moseson. Would you please stand for the reading of scripture? Today I have the privilege of reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you reading that for us. Good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Moser. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, we're so glad that you're here with us today. A little bit dreary outside, but glad to see everybody awake and with us and with coffee in hand. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. If you're not there already, 1 John chapter 2. Well, as we continue on in this series uh, in the book of John... Uh, John is writing to these churches in Asia Minor who are in a state of confusion uh, and a state of concern over the state of their own souls. They were worried about the assurance of their own faith, if they actually believed the things that they claimed to believe, if they were actually redeemed in the way that they had been promised by the gospel originally, that they would be redeemed. And in being exposed to the false teaching of the Gnostics among them, they found themselves in this position of curiosity and concern. Do we actually know the God of the universe who created us, who redeemed us? Do we actually know him, or is there something that we're missing? Do we need what these Gnostics have? Do we need this external, extra uh, experience of spirituality, this higher plane of existence, this insight that comes from God on top of Scripture and on top of the gospel in order to actually know him? And so John is writing to these brothers and sisters, these people that he knew well, had ministered to well, and had loved, and he's writing them specifically so that they would know that they had the assurance of their own salvation. And you see in the text that we're going to look at today, really kind of the father heart of John towards these children of his, spiritually speaking. You see the compassion and the heart with which he approaches them, because he's taking this moment in the middle of this book to encourage them. He doesn't want them to walk away discouraged, concerned, frustrated, questioning. His goal in talking about all of this to this point is not to to cause in them a doubt of their salvation. He is not trying to talk them into being lost. Rather, he's trying to assure them of what they already knew. He wants to encourage them in the fledgling faith that they already possessed. And this is really his approach throughout the book. He's an encourager by nature. 
We all have people like that in our life, the people who just kind of seems like regardless of what's going on, they have something to say to encourage, to come alongside, to, to, to support. They, they recognize the moments of potential weakness or difficulty in your life, and they come along and encouraging, not always having just the right words, but always having that ministry of presence, that encouraging spirit. And John is certainly one of those people. He's gentle, and he's reassuring in his speech to the believers, even as he is both harsh in his truth-speaking to those who were trying to create this doubt in them. And what's interesting about this text is that he makes these six, six statements to three distinct people groups within the church, to little children, fathers, and young men. And if you paid attention to those first few verses as Matt was speaking, you might have noticed that John actually kind of repeats himself, specifically as he addresses the little children. He says virtually the same thing uh, to them and to the young men. He kind of repeats himself twice. He wants them to understand the heart of compassion and the sincerity with which he is speaking, so much so that he repeats what he's saying to them so that they don't miss it. And just so we understand going into this linguistically, he is not just speaking here exclusively to men, nor is he speaking to the the numerical generation to which people belong, but rather he's speaking to each individual's stage of life. He's talking to those who are infants, little children in the faith, to those who are young men, and by that he just means those who are maturing in their faith, those who are who've kind of grown into adulthood, as it were, in their spiritual faith, those who are in the midst of the war, the midst of the spiritual battle. And finally, he addresses spiritual fathers. These are mothers and fathers of the faith. These are aged saints. And again, not necessarily in terms of their their physical age, though that certainly might be the case for many of them, but really he's talking about those who know God, those who have a spiritual maturity, a rootedness in their faith. And so what we're going to do this morning is just a little bit different than what we would ordinarily do. Rather than going through each verse kind of in order, we're going to take these as couplets and look at these groups to whom John is speaking. And so we'll look first, beginning in verse 12, where John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then the latter half of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, John is speaking here to, to new believers. And the ideas that he's going to put forward for them, and ultimately for us, really are very elementary. They're very basic ideas, and yet they're profound. They're profound because of what they indicate about the relationship between God the Father and those who know Christ. He's saying to them, look, you're not like these Gnostics who claim that they have a special relationship with the Father and have no sin. John is saying, I know your struggle with sin. That's what he addressed at length in chapter 1. He says, I know your struggle with sin. I know that you fail. I know that you fall. But understand this, children, your sins are forgiven. And the moment when you were saved, the Father separated your sin as far from him as the east is from the west. An immeasurable amount of distance has been placed in between God the Father and your sin. That the, that the sins, in the words of one author, the sins that you struggle to forget are the sins that God refuses to remember. He is not keeping score in your life, believer. He's not holding grudges. He's not growing tired or frustrated. You're forgiven for the sake of you and everyone knowing the love of the Father for you. 
And John's implication is this. Do you understand, little child, that if you are in Christ, you know the Father? And that's basic language, but I wonder how often we actually stop to think about the implications of what that means. Do you understand that if you're in Christ, if you've been saved by him, you personally, not just us collectively, though that is certainly the case, but you personally know the Father. That there's a relationship, an interaction, a conversation. There's an intimacy happening there. And why did John need to tell them this? Because it likely hadn't sunk in for them, just as likely it hasn't sunk in for some of us. I remember when each one of my kids was born. And I remember the bond that I immediately felt with them. Like looking at them and after nine months of waiting, here they are. And all of the questions and all the conversations and all the wonderings that Jessica and I had going into that season were suddenly brought into fruition. And now we're actually staring at the product. We're looking at this child with such love and such care and such tenderness. And you, you look at their little wrinkled faces and they grab onto your finger and they're just the most beautiful thing in the world to you, even if they're not the most beautiful thing in the world, right? But I can also tell you that it takes infants at least a little bit of time to learn to recognize and navigate their relationship as a child. Because as they begin to grow, even from the early stages, they start by learning to recognize your scent and then your voice and then your appearance. And as they grow a little bit older, eventually they hit this magical point where they actually learn to talk and you hear them say data for the first time, which is the most amazing thing in the world for a dad. It's just the most incredible thing. And then eventually... They grow comfortable enough, both in their vocabulary and in their relationship, that they're willing to call you in the middle of the night to wake you up for whatever they need. And the magic is gone, right? But it's that sense of that growth in intimacy, that growth in relationship. There's something so instructive about John's language here, isn't there? Because as one pastor used to say, who gets to walk into the king's bedroom in the middle of the night and wake him up out of a dead sleep to ask for a glass of water? only the king's child. Nobody else has that position. Nobody else has that right. And frankly, nobody else would dare do such a thing. But do you understand that that is the invitation to which you have been brought if you are in Jesus Christ? That the king of the universe calls you child. That he invites you to come to him, not just with the big problems in life and not just with the things that you can't handle and not just with the big victories that you experience, but to bring the little victories and the little concerns and the little questions and the little needs to him as well, regardless of what time those needs arrive. That is the familiarity that John is presenting to these Christians. That's the access that he's describing to us. And implicitly, John is telling these Christians, don't let anyone tell you that there is something you're missing out on. Some unaccessed piece of spirituality. Some experience you're lacking. Some gift that you haven't been given. Some event that you need to walk through. Don't believe the lie of the Gnostics that there is some other thing missing in your life. You are a son or daughter of the king. But the Gnostics wanted these Christians to forget their God-given position and instead embrace religious fervor, a pursuit of of some unknown external experience. As Ray Ortland said it, religion says 
do better, try harder, pedal faster. Religion says you've got work to do if you ever hope to get back on God's good side, but that's not what God says. The defeatist message of religion, shaming you as a failure, is not God talking to you. It's your own guilty conscience pretending to be God. And no one is helped by being scolded. What does help? When your heavenly father breaks through the noise of who you aren't. The cheap lies in your mind, the exhausting clutter in your life, and he speaks his truth to you. And you start believing him. You start accepting your mission to image his glory in your generation. And that's exactly what John is saying to these young believers. Don't listen to who the Gnostics or others might say that you're not. Listen to who God says that you are. A son, a beloved son, a daughter, part of the family of God, having brought in with all of the intimacy and all of the access that belongs to you. And so now John turns his attention, and we're going to skip around a little bit. He turns his attention to the eyes of the, of the young men of the congregation. And again, when he's using that language, he's not explicitly speaking of males. What he's talking about is all of those who are no longer in their infancy, but are well into their Christian journey. They understand the fundamentals of their faith and the fundamentals of their relationship. And now he's using the language of, of adventure and vitality to speak to them. Very natural language to speak to people who are in this stage of life and in in particular their stage of spiritual experience. Here's what he says in the second half of verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Which, by the way, no one who's a Christian who's in this stage actually feels like they've overcome, just to be clear. And he continues, verse 14, the latter half. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And all of the people who are in this stage of their spirituality go, that does not describe where I find myself. I don't feel strong. I don't feel like the word of God abides in me. I don't feel like I've overcome the evil one. I feel like I'm struggling at every point. I feel like I don't know the word of God very well. I feel like I have not overcome the evil one, but rather he has overcome me. But remember the context of what it is that John is saying here. He's describing those who are young men, any Christians who are in the thick of the Christ life. They're engaged in the day-in, day-out struggles of living in this present world. And when he says that you have overcome the evil one, what he's saying is you have been delivered already, past tense, if you're in Christ, from the penalty of sin, but you still wrestle with spiritual struggles in your life. And understand that you always will, as long as you're breathing in this earth. But the encouragement that John offers to those of us in this season is that we have overcome the evil one. In other words, even though the battle is still raging against sin and the devil, against regret and guilt, with all of the effects that it has on the people around us, the victory has already been secured. The outcome is already guaranteed and it has been given to you in such a spectacular sense that it is as if you have overcome the devil himself. The victory of Jesus Christ has been assigned to you. 
It's a portent of what we find in the book of Revelation where it describes the battle of Armageddon. All of the, all of the, uh, all of the uh, armies of the earth are pictured as being arrayed against God and against his armies and God comes down and, and it's as if all of the saints of all of the ages past are getting ready for this glorious battle. But what wins the battle in that moment? The word of Jesus Christ instantly defeats the armies of the world. And that same idea is pictured here. It's as if we are engaged in the battle, but in a very real sense, Jesus has already gone out ahead of us and won. Victory has already been declared. The experience is still ours to be had. And John says, John says, you can know this because the word abides in you. And in the context of this church, this could have been those who heard the charge of the Gnostics and said, well, wait a minute. This doesn't quite sound right. I've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've read my Bible a bit and I don't know everything and I'm not trying to be arrogant, but what you're saying just doesn't quite match up with my understanding of what the gospel is. And the only reason people find themselves in that position is because to one extent or another, the word of God has already taken root in their hearts. It's amazing how much gospel knowledge seems to get into our hearts just by osmosis. Where you can hear something that is untrue being spoken by somebody who is very articulate and go, I don't, I don't necessarily know what it is about what they're saying, but something does not sound right. It's an evidence of the word of God beginning to abide in you. It's like that classic illustration of this idea, which is the way that bank tellers are taught to recognize counterfeits. And when you're when you become a bank teller and they're teaching you how to recognize a counterfeit, they don't present you with a bunch of counterfeits and tell you to find the spots that aren't consistent with what the actual bills look like or how it feels different. What they give you is the real thing so that you know it so well that just by sight and just by touch, you can recognize what's real. And in the same way, the word of God is being embedded in your hearts if you are this young man, young woman to whom John is speaking. You may have moments where you hear something in the Christian life and say it doesn't sound right, even though you may not be able to put your finger on what it is, it spurs you on to look into God's word to discover what it says. And the abiding of the word of God in you is what provides strength and confidence for the battle ahead. In other words, we find strength in our lives when we believe what God says, when we trust his promises, when we rest in his deliverance, when we minister to others and entrust the outcome to his sovereign goodness and not our own. And finally, John addresses the last group, beginning in the first portion of verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And in this language, John adds nothing new in the second verse for the fathers. He simply reminds them twice that they know him who is from the beginning. And what's fascinating is when you first read that, it sounds like the most elementary information that he gives anybody. Shouldn't he be giving them something deeper, something more, something more complex, more difficult to understand? I mean, he's moved here from spiritual infants to spiritually young adults to the spiritually mature. These are seasoned Christians in the congregation. These are people who've been walking in the light for some time and who can attest to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But his simple and profound encouragement to them is to say twice, you know him who is from the beginning. 
seems like a strange encouragement. It's true, of course. God has always been, and he has no starting point, but how exactly is this intended to be an encouragement to this specific group of people? Well, our relationships to our parents change over the years, don't they? When we're infants, we only have a very small picture of who our parents are. We see them as authority figures, we see them as providers, we see them maybe as teachers. But the relationship, as children grow up with their parents, changes. In my own family, and I've got a young family, many of you are ahead of me in life, but I've both loved and been challenged by every stage of parenting to this point. And I use both of those words very intentionally. I have genuinely loved it, and I have been very challenged by it. But I'm coming into this really sweet season with my boys in particular where I can begin talking to them about deep, meaningful things. And it it really is a new experience for us. We're beginning to have conversations where because of their understanding and their vocabulary and their concept of the world and all these different things, we can start to talk about things that have real meaning and depth and not just in a teaching way, though certainly that continues on, but really where there's an engagement There's a back and forth. You can see the light begin to turn on in their mind, and you can see the way that they actually interact with those ideas. You can see the way that they interact with me and with Jessica. And even though those conversations aren't always easy ones in our home, they open a window for my kids to better know me and vice versa. Well, where the spiritual infants needed to recognize and be reminded that they are now the children of God, with all the access and the privilege that has been provided to them, these mature Christians have come to know that God so intimately that they were seeing the different facets of his nature. They were beginning to see things about him that they had never known before. They were beginning to see his faithfulness play out in ways in their life that they hadn't experienced. They were beginning to see his character born out in their own hearts in ways that they hadn't recognized previously. Namely, they were seeing the unchangeable, eternal character of God. They had seen God's hand in seasons of difficulty. They'd experienced his grace in their moments of weakness. And they were coming to realize that no matter, no matter how much they had changed or drifted over the years, God was always the same. And seeing and knowing God this way had begun to bring them into a different stage of their spiritual life. They were experiencing a true depth of relationship with God that these Gnostics couldn't imagine or imitate. And so if you were one of these spiritually mature people, imagine how encouraging John's words would have been to you. The reassurance that, no, you haven't missed out on anything. In fact, you know the God who is from the beginning. You know the eternal, unchangeable God. You have a relationship with him. You've seen his hand. You have an intimacy with him. And in the words of one commentator, the fathers, the spiritually mature, are those who are already consciously living in eternity. I had to think about that quote a few times this week, but it was one that is so insightful, and I'll repeat it for you. Those who are fathers, those who are spiritually mature, are those who are already consciously living in eternity. In other words, their world perspective, their worldview has shifted from just the here and now 
like what an infant has, to not just what's coming in the days or the weeks ahead, like a young adult might have, but someone who is actively living in and for eternity. So here's, here's how I understood it. I've had the privilege to witness and to walk with elderly believers, both inside and outside of my own family, as they lived their last days on this earth. And I say privilege because though some of those moments of passing have been incredibly difficult to watch personally, I've been given an insight into exactly this idea. Where in those moments, as sweet Christian believers are coming to the end of their life, there is a sweetness that I've I've encountered in the unique comfort that they experience. Where their last days are not necessarily marked by fear, but by gratitude and confidence and even joy in the ever-closening presence of being face-to-face with their God. And I have no other means for how to account for that other than that as spiritual parents, they are in some sense already living in eternity. They have seen and tasted God's goodness in such a unique and profound way in this life that as they approach death, it's like they've already stepped into eternity. That as they walk into death, it is merely a continuation of the relationship that they've had with God already. And upon extending this encouragement and affirmation to the Christians of Asia Minor, John now extends a warning to them. And he's saying, in light of who you are, in light of the assurance you have, the confidence that you have in this life, now how ought you to live? And here's what he says in verse 15. So do not love the world or the things that are in the world. And by the way, this is why we need context for these verses, because this verse has been so ripped from its context and applied to all kinds of things that it is not intended to be applied for, that when you begin to understand the beauty of what John just described in these first few verses that we've addressed this morning, now you can see the connection into verse 15. He's not assigning this as some sort of legalistic rule for your life. What he's saying is, do you understand, believer, that you are a son, a daughter of the Most High God, that you have access to him as father, that you are fighting a battle that has already been won by him, that you have known him who is already from the beginning. So don't love the world. Emphasis mine, right? I don't know that John wrote it that way. But don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think we need to start by discussing what this text doesn't mean because there's a lot of misunderstanding, particularly in kind of the Christian churchy world. Verse 15 has been used by many Christians as sort of this catch-all out of context to insist on a sort of asceticism or separatism or withdrawal from culture at large where people take this admonition to mean that Christians must kind of cloister themselves away from the world and avoid anything in which the broader culture participates. And the problem with that interpretation is that it's at odds with countless other scriptures. See, our tendency within Christianity is often to construct an artificial wall between the sacred and the secular. So I have my sacred life, which happens on Sunday mornings when I sing songs and I pray prayers and I hear preaching and I read the word. And I have my sacred time each morning when I open the Bible and pray and, and have my quiet time with God. And I have little moments of sacred times throughout the day when I pray for a meal. But the rest of the time is kind of mine. That's secular time. That's secular Jonathan's time right there. 
and we separate out these different aspects of our lives and pretend that our spirituality and our real life, such as it is, are somehow divorced. We've constructed an artificial wall. But the Bible makes pretty clear that whatever you participate in as a believer has spiritual implications. So for example, in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is writing to the church and he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And what Paul is saying in in the book of Colossians is there are some believers who observe particular holidays, who establish their calendar according to particular recognitions, who have particular dietary restrictions because of their faith. But, But he's saying regardless of how you observe or don't observe those particular things, don't let anybody else pass judgment on you for it. In other words, there is a freedom that comes along with our Christianity and these things in which we are allowed to participate and likewise are not required to participate. And everything from the food that enters your body to the way that you construct your calendar, there are sacred implications to what you do because what you do in your everyday life is sacred if you're a believer. And John himself, in his gospel, records for us in the high priestly prayer of Jesus that we are, to build, that we are rather built to live in this world even as we recognize that our ultimate purpose is not derived from it. So what John is saying here really is, do not love the world's system. Don't love the world's values. Don't love the world's priorities. Don't live for the things that this world lives for because they're skewed and they're inconsistent with the heart of the Father. And fortunately for us, John breaks down exactly what he means beginning in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And those three categories that John gives us here are a comprehensive accounting of what the world offers and where it seeks its purpose. So one commentator said it this way. He says, these three categories are made up of two unholy desires for things, things that you don't have, and one unholy pride in the things that you do. In other words, he gives us these three categories by which we can recognize the perspective of the world at large. And so let's just look briefly at each one. First, he says the desires of the flesh, or your Bible may translate it the lust of the flesh. And when he says that, he's talking about all those things that are intended to satisfy our physical appetites apart from the design of what God created us for. So the desires of the flesh happens when we allow the good gifts that God has given us to be prioritized over him or to be used outside of their original design for our momentary satisfaction. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh is what causes us to take food with all of its textures and its scents and its flavors And rather than receiving it with moderation, thankful to a creator God for making something that delights the senses, overindulge to the point of gluttony. The lust of the flesh is what drives us to take wine with its tannins and its complexity and its notes. And rather than enjoying the creativity on display that God reveals in his generosity to us, we overindulge to the point of drunkenness 
or in order to self-medicate or escape. The desire of the flesh happens when people use God's good gift of sex not to enjoy the intimacy and the connection with, with a spouse, an intimacy that ultimately points us to God as our creator, but rather to trade all of that for momentary pleasure and lasting emptiness of selfish indulgence with someone who is not their spouse. Anything that we take that is a good gift and misapply it or use it outside of its original context, or give it too much emphasis to, in place of God, is the desire of the flesh. But he doesn't stop there. He also says that there's the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, which covers a whole gamut of human sin. It's coveting someone else's home, or their car, or the clothing that they have, rather than being satisfied with what God has provided for you. It's looking lustfully or longfully at someone who is not your spouse. It's living for the beautiful vanities that this world has to offer. All of the things that make us look good. And finally, he says, the pride of life. Or in the words of John Stott, this is the man who boasts of what he has and what he does. So I got the corner office, or I bought the new boat, or I received the promotion. Now, none of those three things are inherently wrong, certainly, but when they become your purpose for living, when they become the means of your identity, when they become the emblem of your validation or that you've arrived somehow, they have taken the place of God himself. And ultimately, John says, part of the reason you don't want to live for those things is that according to verse 17, that world is passing away along with its desires. In other words, you're living for something that's dying. Don't live for the things you're going to leave behind. Don't set your worth in things that will pass. Don't rest your hope in something that can be taken away. Money loses its worth, as some of us have experienced more than others recently. Beauty fades. Bodies fail. Possessions deteriorate. And the greatest accomplishments that you achieve in your life are forgotten in a few generations. And even if they're remembered, you won't be around to see them. It's pretty bleak. But John continues, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, what God is offering you is something infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. The assurance of something eternal. Something that does not fade or pass. Something that lasts forever. A meaning and a purpose that extends beyond the here and now. A life without end in which for the first time you come face to face with the one who casts out the pleasurable, or rather who casts the pleasurable shadows that we enjoy in this earth. And notice the great promise of this verse isn't just eternal life. And I think some of us are content to end there. It's kind of that classic question of, if heaven was devoid of God, would you still want to go there? Think about that for just a minute. 
if you still had the promise of heaven, if you still had the promise of eternal life, but that place was devoid of God, would you still be satisfied to go there? But what you're promised in this verse is something infinitely greater than even that. Not just eternal life. Not just eternal life in a beautiful place where there's no pain, but eternal life in a beautiful place where there's no pain with the lover of your soul, with the creator of your being, with the one who is the perfect fulfillment of every desire you have ever had. That's the great promise of this verse. It's the promise of abiding with the Father eternally. That for those who've been forgiven for his name's sake, those in whom the word abides, and those who know who God is from the beginning, you have an eternity eternity to look forward to where you are face to face, face with the creator and the lover of your soul where the purpose for which you were designed meets its reality. Where every longing you experience in this life is perfectly fulfilled. And where he has set aside joy and glory for you. And that trumps anything we could seek to enjoy in this life. That promise surpasses every false offering that we might be extended for temporary satisfaction. And it makes every difficult moment worth suffering. See, this whole text is really just an interlude from what he has said in the previous chapter and a half to what he's about to say in the coming chapters. This text holds an exclusive promise for those who know Jesus Christ. In some sense or another, this is John kind of taking aside the family of God and going, let me remind you who you are and what you have before we continue in the rest of this book. Be encouraged for what you've been given and for what lies ahead. So to the extent that you, brother or sister, child of God, wrestle with where you're at today, look to the encouragement offered through the Apostle John. And as a side note, don't presume where in the life cycle of spirituality you fall based solely on your age or how long you've been saved. Because you might be in this room and have been saved for five years and be a spiritual father according to the description of this text. And likewise, you might be in this room having been a believer for 50 years and be a spiritual infant. And I don't say any of that in terms of judgment because this is the question that's been going on in my own heart all week. Where actually am I? In other words, which of these lessons do I most need in my life right now? Because you can be elderly in terms of your age and the lesson that you need the most is the one that's given to the spiritual infant. Do you understand you're forgiven and that you have a father? And the beauty of that lesson never fades regardless of how old you are. So where do you fall and what reminder do you need this morning in order to continue your growth in your spiritual life? So the invitation then is to press in Press in as a beloved child. Fight on as a well-equipped warrior. Rest as a seasoned saint in the goodness, in the intimacy that you enjoy in the Father. And wherever you fall, be assured that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion in your life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the truth 
of what your word says in the text that we looked at this morning. God, I thank you for this interlude that really presses into the heart of the believer, the reminder of who he or she is. God, you haven't given this as a metric by which we judge ourselves against other people and how well we're doing, but you've given it as a means for us to identify individually where we're struggling, what reminder we need to hear, what assurance we need to grab hold of, what promise you've made to us. And God, in recognizing where we are and in what we need, God, will we not be tempted to look away from those things to a world that promises satisfaction but delivers emptiness? Help us not to be satisfied with the trinkets and the toys, the baubles and the temptations of this life. But rather to be willing to despise those things in light of what you have given, given us that lasts in eternity. And God, realizing that even eternity itself culminates in the recognition of the fact that we get to be with the one who created us and loves us. To the, that to the extent that we enjoy all of the good gifts of this life, all of the physical gifts that you've given us, all of the visual gifts that you've given us, and all of the accomplishments that you may have allowed us to experience, that in each of those things, they were not intended to terminate on themselves, but rather to draw our eyes further and further into you as the good giver of all things, that we would recognize and value the giver over the gift. God, help us to find our meaning and our worth and our identity and our value in you and in you alone. Help us to glory in you and wonder in you and find our joy in you. Teach us the things that we forget and remind us of who we are in you. And we pray, trusting that you'll do these things in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.